This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. 925. And I do want to say good morning to those of you who are here visiting and welcome, or, and those of you at home. I pray that God bless you and encourage you. We've been following this. Uh, we've been following this book, and what we're studying is how the gospel began in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus, and how it spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and began to reach the outskirts of the Roman Empire some two thousand years ago, and began to transform lives, and has reached down through these two thousand years to you and me. If you're a Christian this morning, and we come now to the middle of this chapter where we were last week where God, God had led these three men, these four men actually, to preach the gospel in the ancient town of Philippi, which is in, in Macedonia, which is northern Greece today. And so we pick it up here in verse 16, Acts 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them, and and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Now, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? (laughs) No, let them come themselves and take us out. Well, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard what they, that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out, <clears throat> they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had sent, seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now this is the word of God. I pray he will bless it to all of your hearts and in your minds. Let me ask one last blessing. God, we, we, we seek your work in each of our hearts. Cause the word, Lord, to become clear to us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, if you were here with us over the last two weeks, uh, what we saw is how the Holy Spirit uh, directed, uh, divinely directed these men to, to Philippi in northern Macedonia, and there uh, he saved different individuals. That is, he brought different people to faith in Jesus Christ, and Luke uh, records the, the salvation or conversion of three individuals who are very, very different, whom God spoke to in very different ways. I'm not going to go back over them, but you remember we called them three portraits of transforming grace. There was the tr- transformed life of, life of Lydia, And then there was the transformed life of this slave girl. And then lastly, the jailer. Three very, very different people. But today, I want to go back over this account and not rehearse it all again, but I want us to look at this account again, this time from a different point of view, that is from the experience of Paul and Silas. Uh, In other words, we want to trace the ministry of God's Spirit in their lives when they went through this town obeying what God told them to do, and they find themselves in prison, suffering greatly. Uh, So we want to trace that. Remember that God divinely led these men. They were frustrated in different ways in the direction they were wanting to go, and he, in a sense, corralled them to go to Philippi. The Spirit led them not only to a location, but if God is sovereign and he is working out his plans, which we have the conviction here, God led them to a place of suffering not just to a geographical location. God led them to a place of difficulties and painful circumstances for purposes that only he knew. But then he sustained them through those circumstances. And as a result of all that, it resulted in the conversion of this jailer, this most likely a retired Roman soldier, and his entire family. And these would have been doors they would have never imagined. They would have never planned how to ever, how to ever convince this jailer of anything if God had not led them to suffer the way they did. And so what we have today, I'm calling a portrait of God's sustaining grace. A portrait of God's sustaining grace in directing and then upholding the lives of his servants, Paul and Silas, as he moves the mission of preaching the good news about Jesus Christ forward. 
this is a picture then again of God's sustaining grace and all of that. Now, grace is a big Bible word. When we hear it, we sing grace, we talk about grace. What exactly is grace? Grace is best defined, I think, as God's favor. Uh, God graces us. He favors individuals. And, and, and this favor is not simply given to the, those who do not merit it, but he, he extends this favor to those who merit the opposite. That's how great the grace of God is. Paul was a man who was, who was after Christians. He was persecuting Christians. And God's grace, his favor reached out to him. But when we speak of God's sustaining grace, and now we're talking about people who are already believers, what do we mean? What do I mean by God's sustaining grace? And I was reminded in a, in a gathering yesterday by one of the brothers in the church of a poem that John Piper wrote many years ago, a couple decades ago at least, and it's called, What is Sustaining Grace? He says, what is sustaining grace? Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. And that's exactly what these men were experiencing. God had led them to this place as obedient servants and then sustained them in that place and then brought about this tremendous conversion of this man. Uh, things they would have never planned or even dreamed of. You know, that's just how God works in our lives. You know, <clears throat> many people who I speak to in particular, I'm talking about young pastors that we train in the seminary, they can feel discouraged and crushed because somewhere along the way uh, they've been taught or they've come to think that a, a sure sign of, of being in God's will, you know, a sure sign of that you're doing things right for him is that everything will go well. No, <laughs> that's just not how life works, right? That there'll be no miseries, that there'll be no setbacks, that there'll be no pain, you know. Follow the story of Jesus. Follow the life of Paul and the other apostles, and you'll know that that's not the case. And, and some even find it difficult to imagine that suffering <clears throat> is not only a reality that can happen to any Christian or anyone who wants to promote the gospel, but that suffering can actually be essential, be essential and productive. But it is. And if the book of Acts has taught us anything, it's taught us these things, that God ordains suffering, but it's not purposeless. It's not nebulous. It's not, we're not directed from, by some blind power called fate, but by the hand of a sovereign, loving God who works in these ways. And so it is essential. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of the, the mission of extending the gospel. It's what it means to follow in the steps of the Messiah. Now, I want to note that it, it has to be said that the Bible describes different kinds of suffering, different types of suffering. And, and it's good to, to think about them because the, the desired response to a certain type of suffering is different than other cases. Now, now, when I define them, I'm not saying that they all fit very neatly in the little boxes. Life is just not like that. Things overlap, right? But at least it helps you think. So first of all, think about this. 
one kind of suffering is this. It's suffering that comes as a result of our sin. Just bad decisions we've made. Sinful things we've done. And that brings the discipline or suffering of God in our life. The desired response to that, response to that is to see in the good news about Jesus Christ and find in the good news the grace of forgiveness for your sins and the grace of repentance, that sweetness of being able to confess and turn and know all is well with God. And so that's one kind of suffering. Another kind of suffering is, um, is what some theologians called universal suffering. And what they mean by that is this is the kind of suffering that touches every human being as a result of living in this fallen world that's in a process of deterioration. And so this kind of suffering, universal, is such things as disease, sickness, death. One out of one will die. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And, and the desired response for a Christian to this kind of suffering is not repentance. It's not, it's not a sin you've committed. The res- desired response here is to find in the good news of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hope, hope. And Christian hope is the certitude, an absolute confidence that God's future that he's promised is real. And what is the future? Resurrection. In other words, this life is not all that there is. And that's why as our bodies deteriorate, we have hope. This is never meant to be the last chapter. Now, another kind of suffering in, in the Bible is, is what some call mystery or something that's inexplicable, something that's just tremendous and shattering. It's not, it's not something that touches everyone and it's not something that's the result of what you did. It's kind of like the sufferings of Job, right? Who lost everything in a day. And, and these kind of things happen to people where it's just a, a devastating series of events come upon you and it's not because you sinned and it's not not the same thing that touches everyone like and and what is the response there what is the desired response biblically biblically speaking it is is to find the grace of God always the grace of God find the grace of God in the good news of Jesus Christ and the capacity to trust to trust God's plan when you can't see just like Job couldn't see where is this all going Why is it all happening? And to, by the grace of God, avoid being trapped in bitterness. Bitterness will just destroy you. It will ruin those around you. So, now the last kind of suffering is the kind of suffering we have here. And the last kind of suffering is that suffering which is the result of doing good, not doing bad. In other words, Following Christ, following Jesus, the suffering that comes with being associated with him and his gospel, his good news, and his holiness, his righteousness. Uh, this is just part of life, you see, when, if you're a Christian. And the desired response to that is what? Well, there's overlapping here. The desired response to this is to also Look to him, and in the good news of your relationship with Christ is to find the capacity to trust him during this time, to endure the suffering, knowing that 
Endurance brings about perseverance and then to, to submit to his plan for you, this imprisonment for Paul, submit to it humbly, and lastly, this is amazing, but even be able to rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. What were they doing? Singing in prison. Now that's something that's supernatural, you see. And that's what we're talking about here. This is the kind of suffering that, that, that I'm talking about here and that is laid before us here. Jesus said, Jesus said that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You are the light of the world and the darkness despises the light. And you say, is it really, does he really expect a believer to get to the point in his or her life where he or she can rejoice in suffering? Now remember, rejoicing in suffering doesn't mean rejoicing about the suffering, but in the midst of suffering, be able to have joy, right? This is not some masochistic kind of thing. Not at all. Well, what did Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 5, 11? He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, you are blessed when you're associated with me and it results in trouble. Then he says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So. And so it's inevitable that if you want to live a Christ-like life, you will suffer this kind of suffering to some degree somewhere along the line. And Paul laid this hard truth on the Christians in Asia Minor before he came to Philippi when he told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, your tribulations may be different than mine and different than Christians at other times. At this point in our country, nobody's being burned at a stake, right? In other parts of the world, they're seeking out Christians to slaughter them. But that's just a reality even right now today. Paul would write to this church in Philippi, this little church that was emerging. Years later, he finds himself in prison again, this time in Rome, and he writes to this church, and he says in Philippians 1, 29, it has been granted to you. What's he mean? This came from God to you. You're a Christian. It's been granted to you, he says, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is part of what it means to follow in the steps of the Messiah. We're not to necessarily revel in it and, and bring about suffering that's because of our, you know, our impatience with people, our anger, or things like that. It's, it's just inevitable if we want to walk with Christ. So what we have here is what? We have an account here of God's sustaining grace, a portrait of his sustaining grace, the grace that enabled these two men in particular, Paul and Silas, it enabled them to endure this suffering and then even rejoice in suffering. So let's follow these two things right now because this same grace is at work in your life and my life as well. So first of all, think with me about the grace that God gave them to submit is the word I've chosen. The grace to submit to suffering. What do I mean by that? Two weeks ago, when we were looking at the earlier passage, I mentioned that there's this fascinating thing about Paul. Remember what he said? He said, 
He loved people so much and he wanted them to believe in Jesus. He knew that now in Jesus he is free from these religious rules and so forth, limitations. He's free in Christ and he says, you know what? To, to the Jew, I'll be a Jew so I can win a Jew. To the Gentile, I'll be a Gentile so I could, so I could win a Gentile. And what was the bottom line? He said, I, I do all things for the sake of Christ. And so there what he was talking about was what? His spiritual liberty... You know, he didn't need to continue with Jewish tradition. His religious liberty, he's set free from that, but he's willing to go through with it again so that he can befriend the Jews, you see. But what we have here is something different now. Very similar, but different. What is it? Paul is willing to set aside not just his religious liberties in Christ, but he is willing to set aside his personal civic or civil liberties. He's a Roman citizen, you see. And flogging a Roman citizen in the empire was a grievous wrong. Flogging and crucifixion as well was a, of a Roman citizen was a grievous wrong. And they were always to have due process and the capacity to appeal to Caesar. But none of that was given to them. And so the question is raised this. If Paul, Paul was a Roman citizen and he knows he's a Roman citizen... Why doesn't he raise the matter earlier? You follow what I'm saying? Why does he wait to bring it up till the next morning? Why didn't he bring up the fact that he's a Roman citizen earlier? He could have spared himself and Silas, the poor guy who's following him, all the beatings and the indignities that they suffered. He could have spared himself all that. But he didn't say a word until the next morning. And then he raises the question, why the delay? Well, some think this. Some, some scholars believe that, well, it just he didn't have the opportunity. These people came upon him. Before you know it, it was mayhem. And, you know, there's a great crowd. And so they're, they're yelling and they're dragging him in. And so he never had the opportunity to voice the fact, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Um, and I understand that. But, you know, that when they are whipping the man and they clear the t- these, around these two men, he had the opportunity to cry out, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. And then at least by the time that they were taking him pr- privately down to the prison, he had the opportunity there to at least spare themselves being put in stocks. But he says nothing. He doesn't bring up his Roman citizenship. He doesn't bring up his, his civil rights. So what happened there? What was going on? I don't think it's satisfactory to think he just didn't have an opportunity. You know. I think the answer we already know it, and that came from that same passage. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. What he means by that is for the sake of being given the opportunity to speak the gospel, for the sake of making sure that the gospel isn't seen in a bad light, for the sake of the opportunity to, to have a hearing for the gospel, to be an example, and so forth. He says, I do all things for that. And so here what he does is he sets aside his civil rights as a Roman citizen. Paul did not merely use his citizenship as when it was, I put it this way, when it was personally advantageous. He used his rights with a view towards what is advantageous for the gospel? And I think that that's something that many a Christian is, is wrestling with in our culture right now. Uh, debating in, in your hearts, 
And I hope that what you're hearing today will help you. What is most important in in our lives, you see, and, and, and Paul models that here for us. At the end of the day, it's not a political ideology. It is the gospel. If the good news of Jesus Christ changes the eternity of human beings, then it's worth it, you see. That's what matters most. And the question is, do we, do we believe it, you see? Now, someone asked, well, then how, how? Okay, I follow you, but then how did denying his civil rights actually serve the gospel? In other words, what might have been going on in his mind? And how did it advance the gospel? Well, first of all, there's several things. One of, one of them, which is this. If he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen, this could have associated what he was communicating, the gospel, which is new to all these people, but this could have associated the gospel with his citizenship. And not all of these converts would ever be Roman citizens. These are two very different things, you see. Being a Christian and being a citizen of the Roman Empire, being a Christian and being a citizen of the United States of America or any nation at any time are two very different and distinct things. Completely different. And this, again, is something I think is, needs to be emphasized, beloved, in our current context here in America. In my opinion, there are many a Christians who drape the flag around the Bible. And this creates a great confusion, you see. Because these are two very distinct things. As Christians, we have dual citizenship. We are citizens of the city of man. In this case, the United States, most of you. But we're also citizens of the city of God. That is, the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul will later say to this this. Philippi, this little Rome, as they were called, remember? He would later write to them and underscore that, and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. What's he doing? He's reminding them of their primary identity, you see. Paul's primary identity was the fact that he was a Christian, the fact that he belonged to Christ, that Christ had purchased him through suffering for him and brought him into God's eternal family. That was his primary identity. Only secondarily did he think about his Jewish heritage, and only lastly about his his Roman citizenship, you see. And if you, my friends, are a Christian today, if you are a Christian this morning, that your identity primarily lies not in any one human, human nation or earthly nation. Your identity primarily lies in the fact that you belong to Christ. You were purchased at a great cost and you have been adopted into eternal family with your sins being forgiven and God has placed His Spirit inside you and written His law in your heart and you have been justified and sanctified, consecrated, and you have a future in the resurrection. You see, that's your identity. That is it. That's the bottom line. And only secondarily are these other commitments and privileges, citizenships, if you would, of any sort of of importance. Um, 
We are aliens and strangers, says Peter, in this world, ultimately, you see. And uh, it hurts me at times, you know, to see uh, Christians, be it online or in conversations, somehow conveying the fact that they have more in common with unbelieving people who share the same political ideology than them than they do with Christians <laughs> who have been bought with the same price, you see. And that's a blurring, a blurring, a confusing of our identities and what truly, truly matters at the end of the day. Our ultimate allegiance, your ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus and not to any one nation. And when you drape the flag around the Bible, ask yourself, would you drape a Mexican flag around it? Would you drape a, a, a Scandinavian flag around it? What, are there no Christians in those countries? Do you associate the history of America so closely to this? Did this not exist before our founding fathers came here? There's a great confusion at times. And what I press upon you today lovingly is simply to, to not blur the lines in your own decision-making, your own thinking here. That was a long answer to how did this serve the gospel? How did it serve the gospel? He, he did not want there to be any confusion between his Roman citizenship and his, and his faith, the gospel he was preaching. And secondly, more briefly, Paul knew they would have to suffer. He's telling everyone everywhere he goes, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And, and now it would seem disingenuous if he's telling people they must suffer and then he does all he can to not suffer, you see. And so it behooved him to, to accept it. This is what he preaches. We have to suffer to follow Christ. And who am I to say, well, not, not me, but you, you see. And later he would write to Timothy. Remember, Timothy was one of the four who was present here. He didn't end up in prison, but I'm sure Timothy's watching. Remember, he's a young disciple. And later he would write to Timothy near the end of his life, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. It's part of what we have to do, Timothy. So Paul wanted to model it. In other words, he wanted to make sure he was an example. He was no masochist, but he wanted to be sure that he set an example for others. And then lastly, why do, how did this serve the gospel? Well, Paul had seen with his own eyes how persecution didn't actually stamp out the gospel, but would spread the gospel. Such is the mystery of God's, of God's work. Everywhere the church is persecuted, it gets hotter and more on fire, and the gospel spreads. And Paul had witnessed it himself when he was not yet a Christian, and there he was at the stoning of Stephen, standing there making sure this Christian gets killed. And what does it result in? The very next chapter, it results in the scattering of believers who preach the gospel everywhere, and it keeps spreading. So Paul himself knew that he knew this. Persecution is not the end of the story. It may very well be God's means to a greater end. And so he didn't know what the end was. I don't think he knew that he would get a chance with the Philippian jailer. He's just, my point is this. When he saw persecution coming, he, he let it, he allowed it to flesh its way out. He didn't short circuit it because he was convinced that he was following Christ and God works through suffering. And so he submitted. And you say, how did he submit? By the grace of God, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, who dwells in you too if you're a Christian. 
And so we can submit. We can make hard choices and, uh, and expect the Lord to meet us there. Well, then that just raises the last question, beloved. Just one last question before we move on. Is, is this. Well, well, then why raise it the next day? In other words, how did raising his citizenship the next morning help anything? You know, he, he didn't say anything the first day, and now the next morning he does. Is, is, Paul, uh, is Paul one of these guys that wants tit for tat? Was that what it was? Did he, did he have revenge in his heart? And so you, you public, you publicly humiliated me. I'm going to publicly, publicly humiliate you. No, I don't think that's what's going on in Paul's heart because always Paul had, what did he have in mind? I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And so what Paul did, I think, was he wanted to make clear to the magistrates that their imprisonment was an absolute injustice and a mistake. And he wanted them to face it and face it publicly. They were not the cause of this public disturbance. They, they were associated with it, but they weren't the cause of it. The cause of it, you heard me read it, were the, the men who owned this slave girl and were using her for profit. And when the demon left, the prophet left. And so he wants to make sure that the gospel doesn't get the wrong reputation uh, as he came into this town. And secondly, he wanted to impress on their minds, the minds of the magistrates in the presence of the jailer. Remember, he said, have them come down to the jail. He wanted to impress on their, on their minds in front of the jailer the illegality of what they have done, and the jailer was a witness to that. And what would that do? That would provide somewhat of a shield for other Christians when Paul moved on. In other words, you, you don't have the right to treat people who speak in the name of Jesus without due process. And so he, have, he really impacted them in that, especially Roman Christians. Um, and so in a sense, he was shielding and protecting this young church by allowing himself to be, um, allowing himself, first of all, to be punished wrongly and then insisting on expressing what his rights were so that they would work to their benefit. It is amazing how God had changed this man's life. He was the man who was out to kill Christians, and now he is making sure that he does all he can, including enduring persecution, to benefit Christians. Such is the power of God's grace in people's lives. So that's what we have there, beloved. Now, admittedly, let me say this, admittedly, it isn't always so clear or easy to see what will further the gospel in this case, you know? Sometimes we face really hard decisions, you know? What will further the gospel? Remember working for my dad as a young man um, in our heavy equipment rental and, and water truck rental, going to a job site on behalf of my dad's company. My dad was yet to be a Christian. I was a Christian. And the contractor, awaiting my arrival, when I got there, he said to me, I want you to go hook up and take water from that fire hydrant. And I asked him, well, where's the meter? Because that's the law. You've got to pay for water as a contractor. I said, where's the meter? And he said, don't worry about the meter. Just plug in. And I, and I was there. I'm, I'm at that point. What is going to serve the gospel here? I'm, I have a conflicting thing here. I'm, uh, my dad is my boss, and I respect him and honor him. This guy's are the one paying us, but... I got a higher king that tells me, don't be a thief, you know. This is going to cost the job. But sometimes, 
Sometimes it's even harder than that, right? It gets really blurry as to what you should do, what you should decide, you know? Because at times we face, we face some competing obligations, right? Competing obligations, which all come from God. We faced that this last year during the beginnings of COVID and all the things that we went through, right? Uh, we have an obligation to the state, Romans 13, right? Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities as an example. But we have an obligation to Christ, you see. We have an obligation to family. We have an obligation to Christ. And, 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 and sometimes these lines get very blurred and you have to make a decision. And the decision has to be informed by what? What is, your, what is the most fundamental commitment of your life, beloved? For Paul, it was what? I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That was his fundamental commitment. Even there, it's not easy to know, well, what will benefit the gospel? How will they take this? What if they take it this way or that way? And it can become very confusing. In our response to COVID in the early days, and um, these kind of, there was these conflicting spheres of, of accountability and that, that had to force us to make decisions. And sometimes those spheres of influence would change in a week or two and I was recently on a pastor's panel and answering questions so what did you do or how did you do what you did and what what was your thoughts and I I shared with them and I said well you know there, there's principles that conflict and you have to make a decision but but the context is also important and the specific context see your your decisions about work and your employers are different than mine or that person's and so I shared with them, I said, we meet, we meet dead across the street from City Hall. And it took us 20 years to build up a relationship with them where they allow us to preach the gospel on light up the night at Christmas. They allow us to run the 4th of July parade for them. They allow us to wear t-shirts that promote the church and hand out tracts, you see. That was part of our decision. And another pastor sitting next to me on the panel, he says, I get it. We meet in the middle of the desert in Nevada. The particulars were totally different, you see. And so I know, beloved, it's, it's, it's blurry these days. What I'm asking you to do is to pause before you make some of your decisions. To pause and make sure you're not deciding things based on some furor that you're getting from some some post on Facebook that has you all wired up, burning, and make your decisions prayerfully. Seek the wisdom of God and ask yourself the fundamental question. Am I motivated by 1 Corinthians 9.20, I do all things for the sake of the gospel? Now, I'm not going to tell you what that decision would be. Like I said, it's different in many cases. I'm not here to tell anyone what that decision may be. I'm here to tell you, remember what's at stake and ask God for wisdom, and he'll give it to you. Well, what else did God's sustaining grace do for these men? It not only allowed them to submit to suffering, but to rejoice in suffering. What a scene, isn't that? What an amazing statement. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That means they were praising God. Um, these people had created this furor, and when they beat them with rods, what, what, what it resulted in was their backs were, born, was, were, were open, 
and it would rip the flesh on their backs in stripes and leave their backs open and bloody. And then they were taken to the inner prison, which means they went down to the darkest, the darkest part of the basement in the prison, and he says he put their feet in stocks. Now, when you, when you think of stocks, don't think of chains where you have a lot of liberty. Stocks were designed to keep your feet and sometimes your hand in such a position that you could not move around to get comfortable and you would begin to cramp. And so that's what they did to them. And so here were these two men in this dark prison down in the bottom, their bodies bloodied, their, their clothing sticking to their backs and their blood that's drying up and they're most likely beginning to cramp because they've been put in a position to make sure that they cramp. They have suffered this public humiliation and an injustice and by the grace and power of God's spirit, what do they, what do, they do? I know what I might do, but what do they do? They, they, they prayed, they sought God's grace. In other words, they, they, still, they still knew they were his children and he would hear them. They prayed and they praised. They sang songs or hymns of adoration to God in heaven. And these other prisoners were listening to him. No hint there at all of self-pity or resentment. Beloved, this is supernatural. This is supernatural. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person who has become what Paul calls, calls a new creation. That you have, another, you have another reality living in you that's not self-centered. That's not pr- primarily only thinking about your own comfort and yourself, but you have the person of God through His Spirit who now lives and resides in you and produces new ways of thinking and could even produce this sort of faith, trust, and yes, even, even joy. The capacity to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Not because of suffering, not, in a, like, not like masochists, but in the midst of suffering to be able to rejoice. And there's, there's been people like this all down through the ages. Um, and it, 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 it's a reality that you and I can experience by the grace of of God. What did they pray? I don't know. I know what I'd pray. Let's get this over with. <laughs> Let's get this done. The sooner the better. What did they pray for? Maybe they prayed for Lord sustain us. Lord give us strength. Lord hold, do not hold this against them. Lord let this lead to an opportunity. I don't know. But they prayed. And then secondly in praying, which again reminds them of the relationship with God, the Father, they began to sing. They began to praise God, singing hymns, uh, songs of adoration like we've been singing here. And I think that's just a wonderful gift that, that God gives Christians the capacity to do. And even just music in general is a wonderful gift that God gives to the Christian faith. The Christian faith, unlike other religions, has just a mountain, a mountain of beautiful artistic expressions of adoration and exaltation in music. In music. You think of Handel's Messiah and Bach, and you you just think of, we talk about Christmas music, some of the best kind of music. It's glorious, and it's it's a gift to human beings to be able to, to participate in this gift that God gives to human beings of creativity, but not just sort of any kind of creativity, but that which engages us with God, you see. That's glorious, you know. 
I don't know about you, but for me, praising God through song helps me, helps, helps me focus on glorious realities that have been clouded by my temporal, you know, problems. It helps lift my vision up higher beyond the circumstances of today. We sang things like that, right? Uh, we've been singing this. And many of the psalms are the songs of ancient Israel, and they were written in these, written out of difficult circumstances, but they were songs of praise. From whence does my help come? My help comes from heaven, right? And they kept singing that, and you could, hear, you could hear him talking to himself. I need to believe this. From whence does my help come? Come on, sing with me, people. Help me out here, you see. And, and, and together, the people of Israel would sing these psalms, and they would lift their souls up. And that's what happens in corporate Christian worship, which is why it is so essential that at some point we can all gather together because it's this corporate adoration of God that helps Helps us get through the trials and difficulties of life together. You know, how does it work? Well, songs can help us in various ways. One way songs can help us is that when we can't find the words ourselves for what we're feeling, we get to use the words of others who have felt what you've felt, who've gone through what you've gone through. And you're reminded not only of what they're saying, but you're reminded that others have said it and survived. <laughs> when we come to Reformation Sunday, next Sunday, and we sing that hymn from 500 years ago, A mighty fortress is our God. We're singing with Luther, the great reformer. And I picture as we sing that song, I, figure, I picture this man running for his life from the Pope <laughs> and realize Others have gone where we're having to go. Songs help like that. Songs work in other ways. They bring the truths that we need down into our souls. Uh, Ajith Fernando, a, a New Testament scholar, he said, songs help truth. Listen to this. He says, songs help truth travel down to the heart, and the, and the use of music, the language of the heart, helps speed that process. I find music gets to hear faster than just a, a piece of paper, you know. And, and that's for me, you know, this is truth, you see. This is truth, and I reflect on truth, and that's where I always start. I'll go to a psalm, I'll go to a text that I know will help me. But at some point, it, I need to speed the process up, and I will sing because I know it will press it down faster and get it to that part of my heart that needs to be revived and encouraged. Music's a glorious gift. I don't just say that because I play music and my sons play music and we love music. I say that because truly we are made in the image of God and God is creative and human beings create beautiful music. But it has a purpose. It has a purpose in the body of Christ. And Paul will say to the Ephesians and likewise to the Christians in Colossae, he'll say, be filled with the Spirit. How? Teaching and admonishing one another. How? with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you see. And when we sing, we are building each other up with these truths, you see. Songs that are good, what I mean by that, not only musically beautiful, I know that's, there's a matter of, of taste involved in that, but I mean this, songs that have lyrics that have truth in them, that are rich with truth, 
what, that, what happens is that these objective truths challenge and confront our subjective feelings, which are usually only based on our circumstances. And yet you feel the pressure of the truth saying to you, from whence does your help come? It comes from the Lord your God. I've gone through this at different seasons of my life, and uh, there was one time a few years back where Sherry and I, we found ourselves in one of these multifaceted times of very profound difficulty personally and the weight of things emotionally and so forth. And what we did, what we did is we started together praying in the morning together and then we began to sing by hearing the music playing uh, the, the CD by Shane and Shane, which is the, ha- the psalm set to modern music. And man, we just sang it for hours day after day after day. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a, a very present help in time of trouble. We would just sing that throughout the day. And it would bring it down to our souls. This isn't pie in the sky. This isn't positive thinking. This is both a spiritual discipline, right? Teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, meaning that's what we do for each other. And it's also a supernatural experience, what the Spirit does for us. Paul would say to the Roman Christians the following, he would say to them in Romans 14, 17, he said, the kingdom of God, the, what is the kingdom of God right now? It's God's reign, his rule in our hearts. If you're a Christian, you are in the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not about eat that, but don't eat this. That's not what the kingdom of God's about. What is it about then? It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He creates that peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding and joy in the Holy Spirit. And later he'll say in chapter 15, just a chapter later, this is his prayer for them, and this is a prayer for you. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Boy, in some congregations, that's a word that's hardly ever used. (laughs) May God fill you, beloved, with all joy. He wants you to be filled with joy, the joy of your salvation, knowing your sins are forgiven because you have repented of them and you have placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. May God fill you with all joy and peace in believing, meaning that's the vehicle, that's the instrument. How does he fill me? Fill me by believing, trusting. And we need to see the object of our faith in order to believe. And that object of our faith is Jesus and the truths that we hear in songs and so forth and we hear him preaching and reading. Right now we are admonishing one another. I'm teaching, I'm trying to lift your soul to a place where you see what, where you see what I've seen, which is what the glory of Christ and the fact that he loves us so that he can produce joy and peace when we're going through the worst times. And sometimes, sometimes we lose sight of it. And again, this is why the corporate gathering is so important because you see it in the lives of other people and it just strikes you. God's with them. If he's with them, surely he can be with me. When I see some of you singing the top of your, of, your, of your lungs, that's why I like to come up before that last verse is over, because I want to look in your eyes, and I, I know that she's really going through a tough time. And I know that he's struggling with cancer, and yet they're singing their hearts out, sometimes with tears. That admonishes me and teaches me 
The Lord is here. The Lord is near. The Lord is with you. And uh, I think Paul experienced this in the Philippian jail, maybe for the first time in his life or second. And, uh, and he was comforted by God in such a way that all he could do is what? Sing. Sing to God in prison. May God help you do that, beloved. These are confusing times. Some of you face difficult things. May God fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Look to Christ. Gather with other Christians. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. One last little passage, okay? Little, one last gem for you. I think Paul describes this experience, not the, not the prison experience per se, but this experience of God comforting him. When he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and he, he writes these astonishing words. Remember, if anyone was persecuted, it was Paul. This guy was whipped many times. Remember one time they stoned him and left him for dead? And, and he gets up. <laughs> And, and so if anybody has suffered as Paul as an apostle, meaning suffered for Messiah, and he writes to these Corinthians, and he says at the beginning of chapter 1 there, beginning of verse 3, familiar words to many of you, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Where does mercy come from? The Father. Where does comfort which is what? A, an experience, an experiential interaction with God. Where does comfort come from? From the Father. And then he says this, who comforts us, I think Paul means himself as an apostle, and, and maybe this is the editorial we, he just means himself and any who may be with him, like Timothy. God who comforts us in all our affliction, there's that tribulation word, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, any kind of affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you get that? <laughs> Three, four times he says comfort, comforted. You know, What Paul is saying is this, is that he's come to know God the Father through Jesus. He has suffered for God the Father through Jesus, but he's also received a a nearness and a supernatural care and love from the Father through Jesus that he calls comfort. Comfort to the afflicted so that he can comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he was comforted by God. And sometimes you don't have to say a word to be a comfort to me. Just knowing that you're still here despite everything you're going through, that's a comfort. You've been comforted by God and your presence, your presence speaks to me. It's God speaking to me. You know, yesterday we were at the memorial service for uh, Josh Arns, you know, the tragic death of this 19-year-old boy and... Um, just seeing the Arns family there and with people, sustained. They don't need to say a word. Just 
you realize what they're going through and you know if God's with them, he can be with me. This, I heard Tony, <coughs> Tony Arns yesterday for the second time now describe his experience this way. He did it personally with me about a week and a half ago. He said, Tony, it's like this. I know it's confusing, Tony and Tony, but what he said was, he said, Tony, it's like this. I feel like I've got those, got those little floaties that you put on your grandkids so they won't seek in the pool. He goes, I feel like I'm going to go under sometimes, but I can't. I can't because he's with me. Knowing what he saw, knowing that he found his son dead in his own bedroom, and knowing that he could say that to me is enabling me to think I too can rejoice because God's sustaining grace can reach me just like it's reached this man right here. What is sustaining grace? Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain and then in the darkness is there to sustain. May God bless and encourage you and may you experience his sustaining grace. Pray with me and we'll come and worship with one last song together.